Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the SciBeat Podcast, where your host, award-winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Radcliffe, host of SciBeat and author of the Breaking Backbones Hacker Trilogy. I'm back from a break from the show because I had to take time off to finish my third book of my trilogy, which published in August. August was consumed with pronunciation guides for the audiobook, autographing and mailing copies, and other promotion, so it's taken me a little bit of time to come back to this show. Because these action-packed books are so popular with my audience, I'm trying something new by starting a podcast series that follows themes from my cyber thrillers with excerpts from my books followed by interviews with the heroes behind my stories. This series will delve into the difference between cyber war, info war, and electronic warfare. I'll start by reading excerpts from my trilogy and then follow up with additional podcasts featuring experts in these areas. For example, Mark Sachs, who I met when he was commissioned in the Army posted by and posted by the Secretary of Defense to the Defense Department's Joint Task Force for Computer Network Defense. Without his input, I wouldn't have made the distinction between cyber war and electronic warfare in my books, for example. Also, we'll have another podcast with InfoWar expert Wynn Schwarta, who will share his challenges in these areas that he experienced personally, and also how he hosted Tough Tabletop Cyber War Response Exercises and launched a security awareness company back in the day. Now he's warning of the coming meta war as AI and the metaverse emerge to create the perfect storm. So what are the differences between electronic warfare, info warfare, and cyber warfare? Let's start with electronic warfare, which involves cyber-driven kinetic warfare, as in the opening chapter of my first book in my series. Chapter one from the book, book because um, starts with a drone war and kamikaze drones, and I published this book a year before the Russian-Ukraine war. I'm going to read you the whole chapter. It's not very long, but I'd like you to understand how the book starts so you can understand how I'm presenting this information to the world that is not just a technical world, but also the rest of the world, because they need to understand what all the cyber heroes in my world are up to to protect them from the dangers of cyberspace. Chapter one, book one, Breaking Backbones. Information is power. The sound of gunfire spurs her on as Psy programs furiously into her wrist device. She is crouched behind a cinder block enclosure normally used for Globecom waste recycle. Bullets ricochet off the cinder block walls and little puffs of dust all around her. All the while, a drone war plays out above. As Psy prepares to execute her code, her fighters are throwing everything they've got at the Globecom drones, modified semi-automatics, hot lasers, drone signal scramblers, and their own home-built fighting drones, 
which are woefully outnumbered. This is Operation Backbone, a hacker war 17 years in the making. Information is power, as the hackers say, and a system ripe for abuse, Globecom has taken over most of the world's data and now controls the global population through human chip implants called Unique Identifiers, or UIs. At this moment, dozens of hacker strike teams from around the world are attempting to relieve Globecom of its iron grip on humanity through a global coordinated attack. It's five in the morning, nearly dawn at the Oak Ridge hub, where Sai is flanked by her fellow hacker freedom fighters who duck and fire from behind the waste bins. This campus houses the largest computational system in the United States and was primary headquarters for the former U.S. National Reconnaissance Office before Globecom took control. Now it's one of dozens of Globecom data centers around the world. The hacker team members wear copper mesh masks to scramble Globecom's facial scanners. The mask is making Sai feel overheated and a little lightheaded. You said the window is two minutes, right? Sai shouts to her wingman on the left named Des, short for desolation. Des taps her once for yes on her shoulder. Beside Sai and to her right, Allure is directing their action through her visual aid goggles. She is also feeling the heat. She raises her face gear for just a second to catch her breath. My vags are fogging, Allure says, fanning her face with her hand before dropping the mask and vags down again. Wiry and quick, Allure stands six feet tall without shoes and weighs a scant 130 pounds. She is dressed in battle fatigues with her flat vest crouched, uh, cinched tight like a corset, emphasizing her long lean shape. In another garbage enclosure across the a narrow drive from them, Sai's two other team members, Skew and Elvin, father and son, are hacking Globecom control signals to drop the Globecom attack drones from the sky and mess with the automated guns firing from rooftop turrets around them. From his side of the enclosure, Dez nods for Elvin, who then switches interfaces to take control of Dez's fighting drones so Dez can focus on the suicide birds. Starting countdown, Dez shouts above the din so Sai can hear him. Dez reaches his muscled left arm over Sai's right shoulder, resting it there familiarly. Steering his drones with his right hand, he raises his fingers on his left hand so Sai can see him counting. Three, two, one. The suicide drones slam the wall in formation and explode with a deafening boom. Sai can't look just now, but she swears Dez must be smiling given how much he loves blowing things up. The explosion clears a 10-foot hole through the back wall to the data center. As dust settles, they see the Globecom skeleton crew members scrambling out through the interior door to the lobby to get away from the destruction. Allure, still directing through her vags, watches the last person exit before the door automatically like locks behind him. Without the reinforced, with the reinforced wall out of the way, size malware hijacks the emergency communications network through a proximity attack, shuts it down, and hops into the Globecom's building and security controls. From there, the malware turns off the temperature controls and fire suppression systems before spreading to thousands of multiprocessing and quantum computing systems racked floor to ceiling in a cooled warehouse-sized server room. 
As size code execute, Allure monitors the heat signatures in the data center. Wait, wait, someone's still in there moving around, Allure yells. Shit, Sai responds. There's no time for this. Allure executes another command, and then the door unlocks and opens. She adds, okay, okay, I've got it. The trapped data analyst, a young Asian woman, races out through the door, which shuts and locks behind her. So you sure there's nobody else in there that we don't know about, Sai asks. No, there's no one else. The only heat signatures I'm picking up are the overheating servers, Allura responds. As the malware spreads across the systems, a military-grade wipe and destroy program erases and shreds the data and the operating programs. It then reaches down to the hardware, causing the electronics to pop and catch fire. For good measure, the malware also follows the data pathway to off-site backup systems, where it repeats the same process. Done, Sai shouts, lifting her mask so she can breathe. The sky is dawning. And Des looks up worriedly at more incoming Glowcom drones. We've got to get a move on, he says. As they pull back, Allure, who's as tall as Des with outer heels on, raises a fist in defiance and shouts the hacker creed. Information is power. Information should be free. The five of them run through the back lot toward their escape vehicle waiting at the edge of the forest. Ahead of them, Elvin and Skew steer their remaining drones through the open rear door and into the large Faraday bins waiting in the back of their vintage tricked out Humvee. Because it lacks any so-called smart digital features that produce signals, the car is mostly undetectable by Globecom scanners. Maine, a large fellow with shoulder-length auburn-plated hair that makes him look like a lion, as in the driver's seat, ready to start the engine. He monitors for Globecom drones bearing down on them with weapons engaged. Hurry, hurry, shouts Maine, a slight Bronx accent to his voice. Man vehicles just around the corner. The team hears the sound of tires screeching, and they hustle even faster to get their gear off and into the vehicle. Off them and drop them, main orders. At this point, everyone powers off their electronics and seals them in Faraday bags before tossing the bags into the drone bins, which are also Faraday-lined. Skew and Elvin seal the bins to protect their devices from the EMP as Allure jumps on board and the passenger seat. She pulls out the EMP, electromagnetic pulse gun, which looks like a small radio dish with a gun-like handle and points it at the drones and vehicles bearing down on them. Initiating EMP, she cautions. Allure fires. The pulse drops the drone to the ground, their useless weapons dangling and broken. Having just come around the corner, Globecom's silver tubular-shaped security vehicles also fail and slow to a stop, as do all their weapons and communications systems. Sai is making a beeline for the open side door Lura just fired from, with Dez in line right behind her. Safe, Sai shouts as she heaves herself inside the vehicle. Just then, something fast and powerful slams her in the lower back, throwing her face first into the Humvee floor. In the same moment, Dez grunts from behind and lands on top of her, dead weight. Blood, blood puddles on the floor between them. It's hard to tell whose it is. 
So that's to get the audience engaged and understanding what this book series is going to be about and hopefully appeal to the non-technical as well as the technical readers. And that is a good demonstration in my mind of electronic warfare, which is carried throughout my series and in book three, especially where Mark Sachs had to help me quite a bit understanding the differentiators. So now let's go on to Infowar. While electronic warfare involves kinetic warfare, Infowar is actually hacking for information and using it to sway public opinion, change beliefs, and unleash mayhem. To demonstrate, I'm going to be reading parts of chapter 25 and 26 in book two of my trilogy, where the hackers have acquired an AI named Telos. And as they do so, Telos is using it to out bad guys on social media. So we're going to start in the second half of chapter 25. After sending Damien's address and other information to Cyan Dark Angel, Bossa and Wizard take a break and head to the dining cabin to make everyone's favorite caffeine drinks. While they're gone, Adam calls his mother, but she doesn't pick up. He's wondering why when Sarsha interrupts his thoughts. Come see this, she tells him. He, as he looks over her shoulder, she explains what Telos is doing. It's tracking down every backdoor, every rogue program, his criminal affiliates, Russian oligarchs, anyone connected to Damien, Sarshik tells him. More than that, it is outing their crimes on the social media boards and its system and systematically destroying their fortunes and empires. I see, I see, is transferring their money and assets to worthy causes and individuals, and they're vetted. None of these are bogus causes or scams, Adam observes. Look, see? When Bossa and Wizard return and hand out coffees, Adam catches them up on what's going on with Telos now. Okay, so it seems that the program behind the back door is mapping Damien's syndicates and all their illegal activities. Yeah, we know his syndicate of syndicates called the Circle, Wizard responds offhandedly. Telos is taking them all down and distributing their illicit gains and assets the same way it's breaking up Damien's empire, Sarche adds. And it's outing them on social media, Adam continues. See here, it's pointing to a crooked official in Paris. And look, there's a new anonymous posting on social platforms with a factual article citing his crimes, one of which involves underage boys. The article is backed up by evidence, pictures, and exactly where to find him. Wow, look at the responses, Bossa says. The mobs are ready to lynch the guy. Information should be free, Wither says quietly. Is that what the hacker saying means? They say they see the latest headline, which reads, New sightings of Damien Strandeski, disgraced Glowcom board member. And another headline appears that reads, More unraveling of Davy Damien Strandeski's criminal empire. Adam glances up at Bossa and Wizard. Do you think that Talos is doing this on his own, he asks. Bossa and Wizard look at each other knowingly. Then Bossa answers. Talos is doing what it was programmed to do, she says carefully. It may be happening as a result of accidental bias or sloppy methodology, but it has been programmed by humans to do what it is doing now. Tech never acts on its own, my boy, no matter how advanced, Wizard continues. 
This isn't like Skynet unleashing Terminators because it decides on its own to wipe out humans. Whatever technology does, there is always someone who programs to do what it is doing, either by accident or on purpose. Now we're going to move to part of the next chapter to show what happens to these people who have been the victims of information war. However, they are bad guys, so call them what you will. By the time he reaches the last staircase leading out of the caves, Damien's heart is pounding. He's getting too old for this, he thinks, as he stops to catch his breath. He looks up at the pinhole of light above him. Just one more flight to go, he says breathlessly. At this level, his devices have reached full signal strength, and his wristcom is blowing up with urgent messages. His Russian backers are threatening him. Crypto accounts worth millions of euros are converting to zero balances. Then he sees news headlines outing him and his cover life in Kent. Everything is on the social media boards, including pictures of him under his new identity and images of his house. Most of the messages and alerts are coming from his security chief, so Damien calls him first. What the hell is going on? Damien asks in English. Working on that, sir, but it's imperative that we get you out of here before officials close in on this location. Authorities are already combing your property like ants at a picnic, his security chief answers in a light Texas drawl. I'm up top near the fence at the eastern perimeter. I have a chopper waiting. We're breaking a little bit in the content here, and we're going to go back to how this is affecting him. When he gets to the top, he asks his security chief, where is everybody? I'm the only one left, sir. Everybody else is trying to pry their chips out of their arms and hide somewhere they can't be found. They're all under cyber attack, just like you are, his security chief informs him. Then why are you still here? Damien asks suspiciously. Well, I don't have a chip, sir. Took mine out when Globecom went down, and I don't have much of a life either, the chief answers. We're having a little bit of break in text, and then I want to read you another section just to show how this is affecting them. Our names, addresses, and faces are on social media now, and the whole world's coming after us, his security chief continues. We need some place to hide while this cools down. Damien looks down at the stinking black womb where his chip used to be that he just removed. So now I am the hunted, he says hollowly. hollowly. Methinks, though, that maybe I shouldn't be so quick to run. Maybe we go to the source of our problem. They wouldn't be expecting that now, would they? And where, sir, is this source you speak of? Asked the security chief. Why, the AI, of course. It must be doing this. No human can be so thorough, thorough or fast at finding, collecting, analyzing, correlating, and publishing all this information in so many forms, on so many people, and in so many locations. That means the AI works, Damien exclaims. So that's the beginning of me showing how information war works. And um, you can see that it's being used to cause mayhem. It involves hacking. In this case, Telos, the AI, does not have any ethics. It was built in a Russian work camp. And so it was given a command to do what it needed to do. And it took off from there and started spreading out to Damien's uh, network of bad guys that are supporting him or working under him and started applying uh, what it was doing to Damien to them as well. 
And that is an information war move, um, which again is different from electronic warfare where there's actual drones and bullets and lasers and weaponry. Now on to cyber war. Cyber war involves hacking infrastructure systems such as power grids, airports, hospitals, and financial systems to cripple a target or a country or a region. I've been around a long time. And in 1996, President Clinton issued PDD 63. I have a copy of it here. I consider it a collector's item. In it, it predicted this type of attack on US infrastructures and set up critical infrastructure information sharing and analysis centers. Today, we have the CISA that is part of the US government uh, from the White House, who is uh, very active, which is very active in trying to protect the entire infrastructure. And it's looking all the way down to the code level now of what we need to be doing um, to protect our critical systems and our embedded device systems, such as uh, uh, electronic uh, control systems and power systems that are being managed through embedded devices, um, that some of which is actually reaching out to the internet now. Uh, I've been covering a lot of that lately too in my journalism career. Um, in this case, I want to read from book three in my trilogy, chapter 10. This is chapter is titled In the Dark. And this is the first one where I'm actually bringing up cyber war against an infrastructure. In the dark. It's a sunny day on the Russian river when the city of lights goes dark. Sai has called everyone into the computing cabin where they, they're tuned into four news sites in separate frames on the big screen. Paris suffered a massive blackout less than an hour ago, and the city's main power providers are investigating, says an announcer in French with English subtitles. In another frame, a CNN anchor speaking in English is already making conjectures. The Paris-based Directorate General for External Security is looking into the case of the outage. So far, they haven't ruled out cyber attack. This is an evolving story. In another frame, a map of France shows the Paris region in near total darkness, as if the city had been swallowed by a black lake in the night. The camera pans to a close-up of the Eiffel Tower, which is dark, and then Fontaine, the Fontaine Saint-Michel, which has stopped flowing. Confused late-night tourists are wandering around the famous fountain like shadows in the night. Suddenly, CNN splashes a red breaking news banner that reads, Massive power adage in the eastern seaboard. Then it flashes a scene in Manhattan where rush hour traffic has ground to a halt. Signal lights out as electric cars are stopped nose to tail in the intersections. This just in, says a CNN newscaster, Con Edison, which services all of New York City and Westchester County, is also reporting that power is not reaching its customers. Other system operators are reporting similar problems on the East Coast. The New York's Department of Environmental Protection, DEP, which provides water services and wastewater management to 9 million residents in the state of New York, is also reporting outages. Sai clears her throat. Clearly, this is an organized operation and funded by deep pockets. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Russia again. Russia, definitely Russia. 
They've always hated America as much as they hate Europe, Sarsha agrees. The bigger issue is if the aggression behind these blackouts follow the cyber war playbook, the next thing they would do is launch a physical attack when our East Coast ports can't launch vessels from air, sea, or land. I've seen this before when I worked for Globecom's China Hub. The People's Republic of China dedicated separate private utility solely to service the Ministry of Defense so it can respond to an aggressor even when their public utilities get disrupted. Then you're saying China's behind this, Sai asks. I'm just saying I was privy to their redundant infrastructure networks when I ran security for the China hub. A new alert draws their attention back to the screens. Another power outage is now affecting Beijing and its metropolitan areas. Guessing it wasn't China after all, Sarshi snarks. The CNN announcer looks confused, then starts reading the new prompt. The China State Grid, SGCC, reports that it's unable to deliver power to Beijing, citing outages at its plant control systems. Authorities now say these events bear the hallmark of a coordinated effort by a nation state. The image is panned central Beijing, where traffic and public transit is at a standstill. The newscaster continues. Morning commuters are trapped in gridlock and authorities are advising people to stay off the roads. Medically fragile patients on ventilators and other life-preserving equipment are being evacuated to temporary locations with generator power. Images show old and handicapped people being carried from their apartments on stretchers and into ambulances. Another frame back in France, the Orly airport is mostly in the dark except for auxiliary power lighting the terminals and limited number of airstrips. The English translation beneath the French speaking newscaster reads, airports are operating on generators. Inbound flights are being diverted to other airports and fleets are grounded because tower operators cannot access air traffic control applications. Authorities are working with affected agencies to restore service, but first they must get the, to the cause of the outages. So these, that's a, what we would call a cyber war. That is breaking down the infrastructure so that in this case, they might not even be able to respond to a, a follow-up kinetic attack on the enterprise, on the uh, infrastructure of these affected regions. There's a lot of reasons and um, subterfuge and spying that goes on to let you figure out, uh, the reader figure out who it's going to be uh, that's done all of this. But for now, I just wanted to give you, my audience, a taste of what is actually in my books and why I wrote what I wrote. Um, also, now I want to actually spend more time in follow-up webcasts uh, uh, going over the details of these types of attacks with the experts. You've probably noticed, too, that there are some overlap between the different types of warfare, which we will be discussing with these experts, starting again with Mark Sachs and followed by Wynne Schwartaw and other experts I'm lining up to bring on the show. Once this particular series is completed, we're going to move on to other series focusing on artificial intelligence, privacy, green technology, and other future trends that are changing the cyber landscape that regulators and cyber professionals should have on their radar today. So for now, I wanna thank you all for listening and there will be more to come. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybeat Podcast with Deb Radcliffe, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.